this episode on human rights, we sit down with Helen Durham, an international humanitarian lawyer, to talk about the laws of war and the need for a gender perspective on the matter. Dr. Durham, who is the director of an international law and policy at the International Committee of the Red Cross, was recently invited by the Australian Embassy to Sweden in order to deliver the first Raoul Wallenberg address in Stockholm. This address was organized by the Embassy together with the Raoul Wallenberg Institute and the Raoul Wallenberg Academy. And we took the opportunity to learn more about her work, but also her personal reasons on why going into this career. On Human Rights is a podcast where we interview experts and others about human rights-related issues, and it's broadcast here from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. My name is Sandra Jacobsen, and the interview you'll hear shortly took place just outside the Army Museum in Stockholm after Dr. Durham's speech at the Ralph Wallenberg address. Enjoy. I am the Director of International Law and Policy for the International Committee of the Red Cross, and we have a mandate to be the guardians and the promoters of the laws of war. So I'm very lucky. I have a department of probably globally over 140 IHL experts, experts in international humanitarian law. I have legal advisors in the policy sense, as well as um, uh, the people relating to academia and uh, those who create the international review. So law, policy and engagement with academia. All right. And uh, I've done some research on you and I found a very motivating TED talk that you did two, three years now. Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, what struck me was the thing where you told me uh, or the audience about how you ended up in this field and that an insult made you go into this field and can you just elaborate on that? Well, certainly. It was a long time ago when I was a young international lawyer and I was very passionate about uh, particular issues relating to women. And so a friend of mine went to the former Yugoslavia and she was working with women who were victims of rape in the former Yugoslavia back in the 90s. And I wrote to her and asked her what we could do back in Australia to help the women there. And she wrote back saying they'd like rape deemed a war crime. And I was like, well, I think there's other things we could do. This is a bit difficult. Can we do a cake sale or something? She said, no, we want, uh, we want, they want legal jurisprudence of what they suffered was wrong. So I started thinking and realised that Australia was sending about 114,000 refugees were coming to Australia every year from the former Yugoslavia and thought about the fact that maybe these, um, amongst this population, there'd be some women who would like to give evidence to get rape deemed a war crime. So I rang the Australian government and I was a young enthusiastic lawyer and I said you know how is the Australian government taking the evidence from the refugee population and they said well we're not and I said to the gentleman but but surely that's an obligation and I obviously must have been a bit irritating because after a while he said to me very brusquely listen little lady if you want to have the evidence taken take it yourself and he hung up on me and I thought well why not so I set up with a number of friends a small NGO that took evidence from people from the former Yugoslavia specifically focusing on sexual violence but more broadly and um in this process, and I contacted the tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, I came across the laws of war. I came across the Geneva Conventions and their additional protocols. And I really found the idea that you could limit suffering during war inspiring. So I went on and did further academic studies and then started with Australian Red Cross and have spent time in the field as a, uh, a delegate, but also um, now director of law. So it's a story that, as you said, it comes about from an insult, someone really thinking it's not useful. And uh, I'm really happy that that, uh, that member of Foreign Affairs um, inspired me, so to speak. Mm. Uh, it inspires me as well. Uh, <laughs> I'm currently, you hold a position for international law and policy at the International Committee of the Red Cross. 
What does that entail? What does that mean? What do you do? Okay, well, what that means is that um, the Geneva Conventions, their additional protocols, and a number of other treaties relating to weapons are the framework that is the normative requirement of reducing suffering during times of armed conflict. And I'm sure many of your listeners would know more details, but that's a basic explanation. Now, as the Director of Law for the ICRC, I have to make sure that we engage with governments from Syria to America, from Mali to Afghanistan, to make sure they know their legal obligations, but that we don't stop there, that actually we provide practical solutions whether it's assisting them to draft implementing legislation on particular treaties, whether it's training their military. I have a whole group in my department that are former military officers and they engage in training the the armed forces and even non-state armed groups in the obligations under the laws of war. It involves making sure that at places such as the Security Council, I've had the honour of addressing the Security Council on the issue of the protection of women during times of armed conflict, so we raise our influencing voice, but it's also to provide our colleagues in the field, so those are in war zones themselves, with an understanding about some of the legal issues. So it's really about um, ensuring that my really fantastic department, there's brilliant people in there, work hard to demonstrate that even wars have limits and some laws too absolutely and that the law is a critical role um, and if it's implemented there'd still be suffering in conflict but if the international humanitarian law is implemented if targeting decisions are correctly taken and that they take into account distinction between civilians and combatants if detainees are treated humanely and a whole range of other um, legal obligations that there would be a reduction of suffering um, I want to go into um, something else that I found out in your TED talk. I really recommend everyone to, to see that. Women in conflicts. You speak a lot about the need for maybe a more a feministic lens or perspective on conflicts and uh, also when you apply international humanitarian law. What do you mean by that? Okay, well, I think for a long time on the issue, say, of sexual violence, it was just assumed that rape in war crime was an inevitable consequence, sort of almost rolled off people's tongue. Rape and pillage It was really seen as this is what happens. And in the last few years, we've really seen a focus, particularly through the jurisprudence of the ICTY, ICTR, and now the International Criminal Court, in classifying that sexual violence against women is illegal. But we need to take the story further because the idea that women in times of conflict are just vulnerable is only half the story. In our experience in the in the field, women are vulnerable, but they're also they have tenacity, they have power and they can make a lot of changes. And we also see on the other side from a gender perspective, men are often very vulnerable during times of conflict. They can be victims of sexual violence, particularly in detention. They also can be um, very vulnerable 15-year-old men or young men globally are very vulnerable during conflict to be made um, to be conscripted into conflicts or taken as child soldiers. So I think a gender perspective on the laws of war is really about going beyond the paradigms we create. Women are always victims, men are always perpetrators. Women suffer, men perpetrate. And really trying to analyse what does the law of war say about human dignity? And I think there's there's a whole lot of work that we're currently in the ICRC reflecting on and others I would urge from an academic or, or a practical point of view, analyse what the real needs are, not what we think people experience.
What would those needs be, if you can give an well, example? Well, sometimes you find the needs that, um, for example, women who are victims of sexual violence, we in the ICRC go into the field and think that we will talk to the non-state armed groups or we will be the, the, the go-between. But in fact, recently there was an experience where a, a woman in an African country said, please do not be the go-between. What we want you to do is provide a safe space where we can talk to those individuals themselves because they have mothers and sisters and daughters and they will understand much better if it's us that engages in it rather than you being the intermediary. I also think there's issues particularly relating to sexual violence against men in detention. Last year the ICRC visited almost a million people detained um, due to armed conflict and other, other situations of violence and we really do see that men are often victims of sexual violence but it's not in the minds of the humanitarians and so they don't necessarily do programs, they don't provide adequate support. So in a practical sense, it's really about listening carefully to what people need. Mm. And have you seen any change since rape in itself has been made as a war crime? Yes, well, since we've got now a lot of jurisprudence that rape is not just a war crime, but it can be a crime against humanity and even genocide, it always, sometimes I get a bit heartbreak. It, it, it heart, it's heartbreaking because it always strikes me, that, strikes me that you still hear a lot about sexual violence in conflict. But I think the progress we've had is, number one, we know that it's a crime and 15, 20 years ago when I started in this area, when I was engaged in, in training the military, I couldn't guarantee that they'd be prosecuted. And now I can say, I can't guarantee you won't be prosecuted for sexual violence. And some of the, some of the, um, the judgments have been quite strong, 30 years of, of, of uh, being detained if you commit sexual violence. So I think what we've seen is a, a shift where there's an understanding that sexual violence is not acceptable. The second thing is we are talking about it. The fact that we're discussing it now is a huge leap. 15, 20 years ago, it was not on the radar. And so I really hope the fact that we still keep hearing about it is not that there's more sexual violence um, but people are comfortable and feel empowered to speak out mm. so I think human nature is is from the dawn of times I mean I always say Homer's Iliad started with the discussions about the trading of women so I think we're naive if we think we can change this overnight but we are progressing it we can talk about it we've got jurisprudence and we can embed it more in training mm. And also just talking about it and also accusing people when sexual violence has taken place, I think we can see a lot in the Me Too campaign. So the Me Too campaign has had a huge influence, not just in countries like Sweden, but across industries. And the humanitarian industry itself is also reflecting on the uh, sexual abuse and exploitation. So I think that we currently see an environment globally where sexual violence during times of armed conflict, as well as during times of peace, is spoken about. And that is certainly a next important step to make sure we eradicate this lack of dignity. Since the dawn of time, people's, people have been using women's bodies as battlefields and we've really got to make sure that we do everything we can to stop this situation. I will go on to that you're saying that you're meeting women detainees in your work. Can you just explain a bit more, like, do you see that they, these women face the same problems? Um, women who are detained often face very different problems that men are detained. Number one, in many instances globally, when women are detained during times of conflict, they're often taken away from their hometown, which means if they're mothers, there is a long distance between them and their children. And whilst obviously, and particularly in a country like Sweden, there is a strong impact of fathers on children's lives, in many of the conflict situations, women's play a critical role in children's lives. So often when I've in, um, interviewed 
as a detainee uh, delegate or a delegate visiting individuals detained, you really do feel one of the big suffering is when women are separated from their family. You also see issues of hygiene. You see issues of the requirement to have adequate nutrition. So I think there's, there's a lot of issues that women experience during times of armed conflict when they're detained. And we need to think carefully about how we program for them as humanitarians and what the law does to protect them. In 2016, we saw about 22.5 million refugees in the world. I don't have the latest numbers on that, but how would you describe the situation in 2017-18? It's a really sad situation where we have many, many people on the move and the numbers are quite extraordinary. It is interesting, though, to see that proportionally, globally, the population has grown. The numbers of people who have crossed borders and become refugees is very high, but it's not a significant shift. What we see in the International Committee of the Red Cross is the huge numbers of people that move within their own countries, so basically become internally displaced. And I think there's another critical factor that people need to think about, which is the um, idea for a new life, that now when people have iPhones and they can connect more, there's these real expectations and you're not stuck in a place. So I think what we need to ensure is that governments globally understand the obligations they have under international law. It is difficult. I think it interfaces with the what I would call the dehumanisation discourse and the ease to which to identify people who are seeking asylum as a category of people that you shouldn't help. Um, but I think we also, beyond Europe, have to understand that the vast majority of refugees are in places such as Lebanon and Jordan. And in fact, Europe only has a relatively small experience of this. Um, I think it's been quite sobering for many European countries to suddenly have the experience of how to deal with those people that are fleeing. But in many of the African countries I visit, this has been something they've been dealing with for years and years, and often in situations where they have less infrastructure, they have less capacity to absorb people. So I think we need to ensure that as people move more at the moment, as we've got a really big issue in global refugee and IDP problem, that we continue to hold on to the issues of humanity and we continue to hold on to the legal frameworks, whether it be the Refugee Convention and other human rights conventions, that ensure these people are treated humanely. Hmm. So what do you think 2018 will bring? Well, I think we need to look very carefully in the area of the laws of war of new technologies. Um, artificial intelligence interfaced with cyber warfare, interfaced with autonomous weapons. So we really need to make sure that we get our minds as international lawyers ahead of the game, that we don't just respond to the, uh, the, the, the problems when they occur, but we think really broadly. Um, one of the things that my department and the International Committee of the Red Cross is flagging is we need to hold on to human decision-making in the development of new technologies during warfare. I think we also need to start looking in 2018 and forward about IHL, or the laws of war and the environment. I think that the environment is, as many people would know, protected under IHL, but it also can be a reason for conflict. So the issue about the environment and IHL is another matter we need to take into account. I think finally we need to get better at understanding gender issues. I've been talking about them for years. But gender, diversity, uh, intersectionality, where you look at people not only through the lens of gender, but disabilities, sexual preference. I think there's a whole range of areas of how people are categorised incorrectly. I always say that armed conflict exacerbates pre-existing inequalities in society. And we need to start there because it's, it's got a connection with times of peace, the way we treat people during times of war. Speaking of Raoul Wallenberg, 
he was a person that stood up for human rights before maybe human rights even existed in that mm -hmm. practical sense. I was thinking, could you maybe think of an example um, today, people, organization, individuals that does similar work but doesn't get the credit for it now but might get it later? Absolutely. I think real visionaries are never understood or uh, respected during their times. Um, I won't name individual organisations, but there's some amazing women's groups that I've come across globally in places like Africa, the Middle East, that are really standing up for issues of dignity. They find it difficult. They are finding themselves at the cutting edge and often have to do things in a, in a quiet way and therefore can't get the credit as they, um, as they currently stand. But I, I look at some of the really grassroots uh, women's groups, uh, say for example on issues in, in Africa relating to ensuring that uh, women aren't sexually abused during times of armed conflict standing up to the warriors themselves and explaining to them that they need to have dignity in the way they treat women. So I think that it's often the quiet behind the scenes work where real courage is found and probably in 10 years time there'll be acknowledgement of that but I think the way human history goes is we sadly don't acknowledge ourselves at the right times. Yeah and with those words we'll end this podcast and I will let you let you go. Thank you very much and it was great to have a chat. That was Helen Durham, Director of the International Law and Policy at the International Committee of the Red Cross. Interviewed by me, Sandra Jacobson, for our latest episode on human rights. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and if you want to listen to more episodes regarding human rights issues, then be sure to check up on our website rwi.ly.se or follow us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Thank you.